0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley. Now, money is really hard to talk about. Uh, I read one... Was that a woo? Was that a woo? Did somebody say woo? Who was that? Was that one of the bohms? Um Anyway, um, I read one survey recently that said um, the hardest thing for us to have a conversation about in our culture is money. Death was a second place by just by a hair, which means you'd rather have me up here talking about your imminent death than money. Um, 12 years ago, I didn't want to talk about money at all because 12 years ago, my financial picture was a mess. We were living on Long Island and we sold our house at the bottom of the real estate market. So lost a bundle. It was in a lot of debt. I was not giving regularly or sacrificially to my local church, of which I was the senior pastor, which posed some real problems when, like, the elder board said, you really need some money sermons. I'm thinking, oh man, I'm such a hypocrite. I don't want to preach on money. Well, I'm preaching on money, I'm happy to say. I'm not terrified anymore. I'm not perfect in the area of money, but I've made a lot of progress. And one of the reasons why I made a lot of progress is because of a guy in the church named John Hurtado. So John Hurtado was this, uh, he was probably about 15 years older than me, this big barrel-chested Italian guy, true blood, um, Long Island guy who had done very well, um, gotten very wealthy, made a lot of money off selling and constructing high-end homes out on the east end of Long Island. And he was really good at it. So I came to John and I just, I just was really desperate and vulnerable and I said, John, I don't know what to do. My financial picture is a mess. I don't know how to get out of it. I need some help. And John said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to bring me everything. I want your credit cards, debts. I want your kids' school loans. I want your car. I want your whole financial picture, everything. So I brought John everything. And he said, yeah, this is really a mess. That was the first thing he said. This is really bad, Matt. And I said, I know, but can you help me? And he said, yeah. He said, let's work on this together. We can get to a better place. Now, some of this was not my fault because some of it was the the housing market, which I had no control over. Some of it was my fault because of habits and spending, habits that I'd gotten into, which were just not healthy. And this morning, I want to talk about, in particular, one lesson I learned from John, which I kind of knew before, but I'd never really put into practice And then after talking to John I got really serious about this Let me give you the long version of the lesson The long version of the lesson is this The spiritual discipline And giving is a spiritual discipline The spiritual discipline of planned Sacrificial giving to your local church Will set you free And change the world around you In ways you never imagined Let me say it again because that's a mouthful the spiritual discipline of planned sacrificial giving to your local church will set you free and change the world around you in ways you never imagined. If you want the short version, four words, give consistently, be transformed. Because giving is one of those spiritual gifts, disciplines that changes us and a spiritual discipline is anything you do on a regular basis to draw you closer to Jesus and make you grow, help you grow as a Christian. So, you're doing a spiritual discipline this morning. You came. You came to church. That's a spiritual discipline. If you read your Bible this week, that's a spiritual discipline. But I want to talk about one of the more underrated spiritual gift disciplines in the Bible, and that's regular, consistent, sacrificial giving. Not splashy one-time gifts, but just week after week after week. Let me give you a picture, and then let me unpack it. So the picture is this. My second church in Minnesota. I was there for five years there's a guy in the church, a man in the church named Alan Anderson. He was a 40-year-old guy with Down syndrome who came every single Sunday. He came by himself. He sat in the same pew. He sat in the same place. And every single Sunday, he was fully engaged in worship, fully alive in worship. And every Sunday during the offering plate was passed, he would pull out his wallet. He'd take out a crisp $1 bill. I mean, brand new. He had planned this. He had gotten this from the bank, gotten a new $1 bill. He took it. In his hands like it was an egg and then when it was passed he would drop it into the plate and then he would kind of turn around and look up and just his face would beam now he was not doing this for performance he wasn't doing this for anybody else he was doing this as an act of worship five years every sunday i think he missed twice so you knew if alan wasn't there he was sick He was there every single Sunday. He was never unprepared. He was never, oh, my gosh, the offering, I don't know what to do. What should I do? What should I do this week? Oh, maybe I'll give a quarter this week. He always knew exactly what he was going to do. And for him, that offering was sacrificial. That is our icon to look at. That is our role model. That is our teacher. Alan's our teacher Now let me unpack that, and what I want to do is, in your bulletin, in your bulletin I cheated. Remember how we said we're never going to print the scripture passages in the bulletin? Well, we did this week. So turn in your bulletin to page 11. And this is a little snippet from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I just, I've had it printed this way because I want to walk through this phrase by phrase and look at this spiritual discipline. Now first let me give you some background, some historical context to this passage because there were some real things, some real historical events going on here. Um, So the background is simply this. As the gospel went to different parts of the world, it came to the city of Jerusalem, and in the city of Jerusalem people came to know Jesus and they started a church there. That church was always poor. They were always very low on resources. Then, on top of that, a series of famines hit the area. And so now they were really poor. So as Paul traveled around and as he wrote his epistles, he urged churches with more resources to give to churches with less resources. So he said, look, we're the body of Christ. We are Christ's body on this earth. So if part of that body is hurting, then the parts that are healthy should help that hurting part of the body. So that's what we're doing with Joss Nigeria. That's what our partnership is all about. Although they help us in ways spiritually that we cannot help them, but we can help them with financial resources. I don't know if you've, you were here two years ago, but two, three years ago we took a Good Friday offering. We collected $140,000 on Good Friday for the Diocese of Joss. They used that money to build a school for children who were, used to be orphans, have now been adopted by Archbishop and Mama Kawashi, 60-plus children, have been adopted by them. Um, They run a school with that, and they also started a small medical training clinic. So we have done this. We have lived this out. It's a living reality. So that's the context to chapter 16. Now, i got to say that initially this passage looks rather dull, rather mundane. The chapter before it is really exciting. It's one of the most glorious, exciting chapters in the entire Bible. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's long, and it ends with this emotional high point and this uh, flourish, rhetorical flourish, where the Apostle Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound. And then death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's so glorious about the resurrection. And then we get to chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. It's administrative. It's procedural. I said in the first service, it's like reading a textbook. But then I remembered, there's somebody up here named Canon Stephen who writes textbooks, <clears throat> and he reminded me that those books are very exciting, <laughs> and it takes a very exciting person to write one. Now, <clears throat> seriously though, I think this link is intentional. There's a connection between the resurrection of Jesus. You go, what difference does that make? Okay, I die and then I go to heaven. What difference does that make to my life today? Everything. It changes everything. It's a game changer in how you deal with money, how, you, how we as a church collect money, how we talk about it, how we deal with it. It is a game changer for everything. So let me walk through this little passage just phrase by phrase, and I'm just gonna read a phrase and then comment on it. It's pretty simple and talk about this spiritual discipline of regular consistent giving so the first phrase on the first day of every week paul is talking about something consistent something intentional something regular weekly or if you get paid twice a month twice a month or at least monthly but weekly's best weekly you do something of every week. See, I love this because most spiritual disciplines are not flashy, they're not amazing, they're not exciting. But if you do them, just keep doing them, practice them over and over and over again. They slowly change you, just a little, 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 little bit. Giving is the same way. On the first day of every week, You know I'm very consistent with my mortgage payment Chase Bank has asked me to be consistent so I comply if I'm on vacation I still make the payment if I want to buy a new cell phone I still make the payment it's amazing how it works I just pay it now God is so much better than your bank believe me God is not an institution. God is not a thing. God is a living being whose heart overflows with love for you, who wants to lavish you with grace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I owe him more than I do my bank. So that's where we start. We start with consistency every week. Ellen Anderson, for me, was a role model of that. Somebody has said, and I really like this quote, this quote challenged me, unless people give systematically, they rarely give substantially. So if you just give whatever or whenever you feel like, I probably guarantee you it's probably not very substantial. Now there's exceptions, but as a general rule, I think that's a good rule. Look at the next phrase. Each of you, not just some of you, not just rich people, Not just super Christians, not just special Christians. You could say no one gets off the hook, but I love the way Father Stevens put it earlier in the first service, he said, the Lord doesn't want anyone to miss the joy of giving. The Lord doesn't want anyone to miss out. So if we opt out, we're, we're missing out. We're missing out on joy, we're missing out on spiritual growth. Third phrase, put something aside and store it up. In other words, make it your first priority. Your offering to the Lord is your first priority. The first check you write. The first electronic payment you think about or make. Make it the first thing. What Paul is probably talking about is what our Jewish friends would know so well as first fruits which is mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. So for instance, the book of Proverbs chapter three, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then there's a promise that comes with that. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In other words, God says, you honor me with your first fruits and I'll take care of you. That's the way it works. So literally what they would do is they'd gather in their harvest and then they would take, A portion of it and set it aside and that was their offering you know my first church that I pastored in Minnesota in rural Minnesota town of 460 people a lot of simple farmers and working people and blue-collar people that is one of the lessons they taught me so I would talk to different people in the congregation I talked to Howard Ballou 82 year old dairy farmer or Nancy, who had taken in 10 foster care boys, or Willis Finnefrock, the fuel oil delivery man and furnace repair man, and they all told me the same story. It was really simple, really straightforward. They would say, I mean, there was nothing electronic back then, they would say, every week, the first check we write is to the church. That's the first thing we write before we write any other church. It was like taking a huge boulder Imagine a huge boulder, and you drop it in the stream. Everything else has to run around that, because that's got priority. Boulder doesn't budge. Boulder never moves. Boulder's always there. The rest of it runs around that. That's the way they live their lives. It was so simple and clear. So let me ask you, what is your boulder? I bet you have one. I have a friend in this church who has uh, done some research on what most of us spend on cell phone, um, entertainment, um, computer, internet access, and it's pretty close, for a lot of us, it's pretty close to a tithe. It's pretty close to 10%. When push comes to shove, I don't know about you, but that's a really hard thing to give up. What is your boulder? And I'm not asking you to give that up, by the way. Well, I'm just asking you, what is your first What is your boulder? When John Hurtado opened my books, you know what he told me? He didn't use this language, but basically what he was saying was, I can see your boulder, Matt. Your boulder is your children. I thought, well, isn't that what dads are supposed to do? And he said, yes, up to a point, but you're doing it so much that you're running into debt and you're not giving to your local church, and I think you're sending the wrong message to your kids. You're sending the message that you're you're actually trying to help them, you're actually stunting their spiritual growth because you're not modeling for them the joy and freedom of the spiritual discipline of giving. I was so thankful, not in that very moment, but I was so thankful a week later that I met John Hurtado, this just super blunt, Long Island Italian guy who would just say it like it is and not sugarcoat it and just lay it out there because he was right. What's your boulder? What does everything else kind of flow around? The next phrase, as he may prosper. In other words, give according to how you have prospered. In other words, some people can afford to give more proportionally than other people. Now I think in the Bible there's a really good case for the tithe, for 10%, just flat out 10% as a baseline, as a floor. And I think for most of us, that's a stretch. For some of you, that may seem impossible right now. And I'm not gonna ask you to get there right this minute. But I think it's a goal to work for. But notice the phrase, as he may prosper. So some of you may be able to give way more than 10%. Warren Buffett once gave a gift of $26 million, and people were ooing and aahing, oh wow, Warren Buffett, how amazing. And Warren Buffett said, I gotta be honest with you, this didn't make a dent in my lifestyle. I still do all the same stuff I do. I still go to the same places, I still go on the same trips, I still live the same lifestyle. It hasn't changed a thing. I still live the same way. King David in the Old Testament, he said, I will not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. I think that's a great phrase. I don't know, that just, that gets to me. Are you giving God something that costs you nothing? Notice the next phrase. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Now why does Paul say that? because he doesn't want it, I think because he doesn't want it to be dependent upon him. I don't want you to give because of me. And I don't want you to give because of me. You should give because you've decided before the Lord, or if you're married, you and your spouse hopefully can decide together, get on the same page. You have decided before the Lord that this is what you can do and what you will do. And it's not pressure, there's no manipulation. There's no emotional appeal. Paul says, I don't want there to be based on emotion. I want it to be based on prayer and planning. One of the verses in 2 Corinthians says, God loves a cheerful giver. God really loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't love people who give under pressure or manipulation or guilt. So many times people have been in churches that guilted them to give. And it's really left a bad taste in their mouth. I don't want you to do that here. Nobody wants you to do that here. God loves a cheerful giver. The Lord has to change your heart first before you're willing to give. Then notice the next phrase. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Again, this seems like really mundane stuff, but it's really important. So what's he saying there? He's saying that there's a two-way street in our giving. First, there's a church to you. The church has an obligation to you. you have a, the church has a responsibility to you. And by church, I mean church leadership, but I also mean all of us. Is the church responsible for their money? Is the church sloppy with their money? Is it really true that Woodley has a 15-bedroom home in prestigious East Aurora, and that we're funding his salary? It's not, by the way. But those are good questions. It's okay to ask those questions. If you really need to, it's okay to ask. I think it's amazing that God has established guidelines. So he said, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to carry it. I don't want to be involved in the process of getting the money to people. I want to stay out of it. I want you to pick people that you think are trustworthy, you think are honest, that you accredit, and they can handle it. We, that's the way we do things. We do things very carefully here and how we count money, how we collect money, how we use money, how we spend money. You, as part of the church, should expect that from the church leadership. And if you're not, if, not, if you're questioning that or if you're unsettled about that, you should dig and find out. So that's the first way. This church to you, but then there's also me, us, you to the church. I said at the opening that you should be giving to the local church. Now, you might say, well, of course you would say that. You have a blatant conflict of interest, which is true. I do. But keep in mind, I came to this conclusion in between pastorates when I was not in pastoral ministry. I came to the conclusion that that's going to be my first fruits. That's going to be my offering. I became convinced in my own mind, my own conscience, based on Scripture, that that would be the first fruit, that that would be the boulder, that everything would run around. Now, how did I come to that conclusion? I'll be honest with you. There is not a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt give directly to the local church, and then you can give elsewhere. You will not find a Bible verse on that. But what you will find is a picture of the church that's really exalted. In all of her imperfections and all of her problems, the church is still the body of Christ. It's not just another nonprofit. It doesn't mean all the people are better or morally superior. That's not what I'm saying. But it is a different thing, according to the Bible. It is called the family of God. I experienced that when I was in Nigeria. I have never experienced before in my life, you know, when sometimes people will say, I could feel your prayers. I felt sustained by your prayers. I know that intellectually, but I've never experienced that until when I was, we were trying to get Bishop Stewart healthy enough to get him home. I felt like born aloft on eagle's wings of prayer. Really, it was amazing. That's the family of God. The church is the family of God. The church is the body of Christ on this earth. The church is the bride of Christ for whom he shed his blood. There's a lot of great organizations doing a lot of great things. And I support some of them. And I'm really happy to support them. But there is nothing like the local church in terms of our giving. So I've made that my boulder. Now Bishop Stewart likes to say that the Christian life is imitative. That means that we learn not just by reading books, which is good and important, but we learn by watching people who do it, and then we imitate them. I had to learn to imitate John Hurtado. I had to just say, teach me everything you know. Show me how to do this, John. Now I wasn't I knew some things, but I had a lot of gaps. John helped me. I imitated him. So I wanted to close as I was writing this sermon in Jos, Nigeria, sitting on a little plastic chair outside Dr. Akwempu's gynecology clinic. That was the bishop's doctor, was a gynecologist. I told him. I noticed most of your patients are young Nigerian women giving birth to babies, not middle-aged white guys giving birth to kidney stones. He thought that was funny, but as I was scratching out my sermon on that chair, I got it pretty well done, and I thought, I need a great last story. I need a great last story, and I didn't have one. So Megan Davis was back here in the United States, unbeknownst to me, writing the perfect story. And it almost sounds like it was planned, Megan, so I would love to have Megan come up and share her story about what she's been learning about sacrificial giving.
1: Hi, I'm Megan Davis. Uh, I've been a member of Res about 12 years, and I have been a security and stability addict for much longer than that. I don't like to move. I like old friends and predictable bank accounts. Thankfully, through this church and tension in my marriage surrounding money, God has been working to free me from this very distracting idol worship and teaching me to trust in him first and him alone. Whenever my husband Tim and I would have to decide about what to give or where to give, it always led to fights. I felt panicked and afraid, sometimes judged by God, sometimes angry. We couldn't resolve our tension or perspectives and in exasperation, we'd pray. But here is where I met God. Each time we'd honestly pray together and lay it all on the table. He'd give us some really great idea that we both got totally excited about and wasn't something either of us would have come up with on our own. One time, we realized how we could tie an exhausting commission-based job to particular bundles of giving that made us both excited to give and put wind in our sails at a really hard job. When I was feeling especially afraid about money during one pregnancy, God gave us the idea to increase by 1% our giving each time a child was born. I felt such relief, like I'd been rescued from so much fear about whether we'd be okay or God would take care of us as our needs increased just by promising to give away. God also showed up just in miraculously allowing us to keep our commitments. When I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was working full time at a job I knew I needed to leave. And my husband had been looking for a teaching job for a couple years. We knew everything would change, but we had no idea how and made our commitment based on my income at the time. Over the course of that generosity campaign, my daughter was born. I found a super part-time job in a wonderful place, but I had to build it from scratch. My husband found a terrible job, and then a much better one, neither in his fields of study, and we moved. And at the end of those years, we were shocked and even danced around when we discovered we'd been able to finish almost on the nose to what we had prayed we could give at the beginning. So I still get a little anxious when we have to decide how we'll respond in generosity for the next season, but I also get really excited now. I know I'm gonna understand God's heart better, be more connected to him, likely be more connected to my husband, less connected to my stuff or my false ideas of security, than before I started to ask.
0: I said at the beginning that money is one of the hardest things that we have to talk about, but one of the reasons why we can talk about it as a Christian community is because the grace of Jesus Christ. I love the verse where it says, for God, um, for God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is sort of the undergirding that we live and breathe as Christians is the grace of Jesus Christ who lived and died for us. So because of that, we can start where we are and we can allow God to transform us to where we need to be. So if you're giving regularly and you're thinking, wow, I learned this way before Father Matt, I would say, awesome, thank you, keep doing it. And may you find even more joy in your giving. Um, And if you're not, that's not where you are, and this makes you scared or offended or um, just like you have a long way to go, I would just say, just decide today where you want to be. Decide where you want to be. Decide what your goal is, and then you can decide how you're going to get there. But at least decide, where do I want to be? And ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to be with money? And then take one step to get there. Maybe talk to somebody like I did. Maybe pray with somebody. Maybe uh, just pray about it. Take one step. The Lord really wants to transform us in every area of our life. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.